Let's go! Congratulations to the Super Bowl champion, LA Rams. KLAC Los Angeles, KYSR HD2 Los Angeles, and iHeart Radio Station. The proud home of your Los Angeles Dodgers. Welcome to off-season Dodger Talk. My ball left field is on its way and a grand slam home run. Hosted by your favorite Dodger insider for this off-season, David Vassay. To be a part of the show, call 866-987-2578. You're a true professional, brother. And subscribe and podcast us wherever you listen to shows. Now, here's David Vassay. All right, President's Day weekend. Hope you had a great week and hope your weekend is going to be even better. Welcome to Dodger Talk. David Vassay with you until 8 o'clock tonight right here on AM570 LA Sports as we send you into this great weekend here in Los Angeles. We have a jam-packed show for you. James Wagner from the New York Times is going to join us at the bottom of the hour to give us the latest on the lockout and where things stand and where it's going from here. I know we don't really want to spend too much time on that, but it is reality. Major League Baseball, the inevitable today, uh, officially postponing spring training games. I mean, couldn't they have done that last week? That was once February 1st passed spring training was not going to start on time so james wagner who has been outside of the union office the commissioner's office in new york and florida and everywhere these two sides have met during this lockout he will join us on his perspective and his reporting so that should be interesting and coming up in about uh, 10 minutes you will hear from one of the great dodger teachers not player, teachers, and that is the great Dave Wallace. If you've been following the Dodgers since the 80s, you know that Dave Wallace was a very valued member of their their pitching staff in a coach capacity. He was a pitching instructor in the minor leagues for the majority of the 80s, and then once Ron Paranoski, the longtime pitching coach for Tommy Lasorda, Uh, stepped aside it was Dave Wallace that took his spot in 1995 you know what else happened in 1995 Nomo mania burst onto the scene that's right Hideo Nomo's rookie of the year season was 1995 Dave Wallace's first year as the Dodgers pitching coach and this past Super Bowl Sunday was the anniversary of Peter O'Malley and the Dodgers signing Hideo Nomo. Nomo went on to win the Rookie of the Year in the National League, edging out Hall of Famer Chipper Jones. So Dave Wallace will uh, share his thoughts on that. And what triggered me was seeing a story on Dodgers.com about it 27 years ago, celebrating it. And last night, being on Sportsnet LA with John Hartung, they celebrated Nomo's no-hitter at Coors Field in 1997. Dave Wallace was there. He was the pitching coach. It may be one of the single greatest pitching performances, at least in the last 30 years, considering Nomo was the only pitcher, and still is, to ever throw a no-hitter in Denver at Coors Field. I mean, that lineup, the... The, uh, the bombers that they had on that team, including Dante Bichette and Ellis, Ellis Burks, um, that was a great lineup in a hitter's ballpark, as you know. And there was an hour and a half rain delay before Nomo went out and threw his no-hitter. So 
Uh, we're going to talk to Dave Wallace about Hideo Nomo, about his time learning from Sandy Koufax. And I always remember working with Kevin Kennedy. He always talked about how important it was for the teachers to be able to teach the teachers, not just the players. And Sandy Koufax was really good at that. And Dave Wallace passed that down as well when he was part of the Dodger organization. So I'm really excited to have Dave Wallace on coming up at 7.15 to celebrate Hideo Nomo and everything he meant to not only the Dodgers, but Japanese baseball as it relates to Major League Baseball. So many of these Japanese players that come over talk about how they used to idolize Hideo Nomo. It's somewhat of a norm now for really good Japanese ball players to come bring their talents to the major leagues. But that all started with Hideo Nomo. Nobody had done it really until Hideo Nomo took that leap of faith in himself to sign with the Dodgers in 1995. So really looking forward to celebrating Nomo and celebrating Dave Wallace for everything he accomplished as a pitching coach and coordinator with the Dodgers and many other major league teams after he left the organization uh, in 1998. Speaking of Sportsnet LA, thanks to John Hartung, Stu Mitchell, AJ Ponsiglione for having me again last night. And after the show, I did not hang out with Hartung. He's too trendy for me. I'm not sure what he's doing. He doesn't want me cramping his style. But I did not go out with John Hartung for dinner. What I did do is meet up with legendary Los Angeles sports columnist Doug Krikorian at the Dow Ray and Pico Rivera. We were with the Prince of Tabs, Bernie Selmanson, and one of the great friends in Long Beach, Ben Goldberg. So thank you to those guys for having me. Thank you to the Dow Ray and Pico Rivera. Great big Dodger fans. I mean, they really love the Dodgers. And I appreciate Mark, the GM, for coming over and saying hello. Appreciate the owner, Kevin Smith, for coming to our table and saying hello and expressing how big of a Dodger fan he is. So, And, and also, all the people that work at the Dow Ray that I interacted with, I, I'm always surprised when somebody listens to the show. I mean, I know you're listening, but to meet you in person is always great. So love being out there. I know it's a spot for Oral Hershiser during the season. You might see Oral Hershiser at the Dow Ray. I'm sure he appreciates me saying that. <laughs> but yeah, Dow Ray, a big Dodger restaurant, one of the best steakhouses in all of Los Angeles and Southern California. So had a great time out there last night. And that was coming off the heels off of my big lunch with the voice of Dodgers Radio, Charlie Steiner. That's right. So I had lunch with Charlie Steiner, went to do Sportsnet LA with the great John Hartung, and then had a power dinner with Doug Krikorian at the Dow Ray. So a big day for me. You know, some people during the lockout, they're just sitting at home, just looking at the clock, looking at the watch, thinking when are pitchers and catchers going to report? Not me. We're doing shows. We got Dodger talk. I'm at a parade for the Rams. I'm at a big dinner, at a big lunch, just being out there with the people. Come on. Not letting the lockdown lockout hold me down. Anyway, the lockout still going on. And honestly, the sense I'm getting from everything we're reading uh, and also by some of the players I'm speaking to via text, 
I feel like this season is going to start in April sometime. And I believe that spring training, in my opinion, won't start until maybe the second to last week of March, which I don't believe is doomsday. I know everybody is so into bashing baseball. It's become vogue to bash baseball and everything they do. And look, a lockout is not ideal, no doubt about it. Um, Should they be able to find a middle ground by now? Yeah, they should have. Um, But at the end of the day, I feel like the deal that they get uh, in March is going to be the deal they could have had now. So that's where it is. And I feel like, yeah, we are going to have a very substantial season. Uh, 162, a very real possibility. It could be like 1995 where it's a 150-game season. I don't think anybody would have a problem with that. So I kind of wish some of these reporters that are on Twitter that we see online just pump the brakes on bashing baseball and trying to, you know, bring the negative to the forefront. Listen, I'm not sure about you, but I've never gotten excited about pitchers and catchers reporting. I never have. And... You know, talking to guys yesterday at Sportsnet LA, they were right, and I concede the point that, yeah, you might not get excited, and it might might not be much of anything about pitchers and catchers reporting, but the fact is, it's a symbolism that the season is getting ready to start. Spring training is getting ready to start, and I fully accept that, and it stinks that that symbolism is not there for us on time, but trust me, it will. It will be there for you sooner rather than later and that's not me just being an optimist or just trying to string you along that's the sense i'm getting from people that are involved it will get done just hold on just be patient hold on for one more day or three weeks 866-987-2570 until that we have entertainment for you dave wallace former dodger pitching coach will join us to celebrate the great career of Hideo Nomo, which started with the signing of Nomo 27 years ago on Super Bowl Sunday. Dave Wallace joins us next on Dodger Talk right here on AM570 LA Sports. This is off-season Dodger Talk. Call 866-987-2570. And now your host for off-season Dodger Talk, David Bassett. Welcome back to Dodger Talk. David Basset with you until 8 o'clock tonight here on AM570 LA Sports. And yes, with the lockout, it's a great time to reflect on the great history of the Dodgers and the people that made that history. And not sure if you're aware of this, but back on Super Bowl Sunday, it was the anniversary of Hideo Nomo making a groundbreaking signing coming from Japan to sign with the Dodgers 27 years ago in 1995. It coincidentally happened to be Dave Wallace's 
first year as the Dodgers pitching coach, and Dave was with the Dodger organization for many years, uh, learned under or at the feet of Sandy Koufax, Johnny Padres, Don Drysdale. He knows his pitching and was Mike Sosha's pitching coach during the Olympics uh, back, uh, back a couple of years ago. So happy to have Dave on Dodger Talk. I'm sure you have done this many times before with Ross Porter, but uh, appreciate you being on tonight, Dave. Oh, Dave, anytime the Dodger baseball is involved, I am honored and humbled to be a part of it. So thank you. Dave, I know you uh, have been with many different organizations since you left the Dodgers in 97, but your legacy lives on through guys like Rick Honeycutt and Matt Herges and others that became teachers. Uh, can you just describe what it was like for you to be a pitching instructor in the organization when such legends like Koufax, Padres, and Drysdale were around in Vero Beach? Well, you, you know, it was it was crazy because, you know, you, you start out aspiring to be a pitching coach. You get to Vero Beach and you go in the famous strings area in your first couple of years and you're looking around and it's Sandy and it's Johnny Pod and it's Paranowski and you know, just Drysdale and, and, you know, Roseboro and Campy and guys like that are around. So I learned real quick, the best way to learn is just keep quiet and keep your ears open. And at the right time, don't speak until you're spoken to, but ask questions, listen to the best, you know, as they were teaching the guys at that point back in, uh, I think it was 80, 81 when I first started out. But my goodness gracious, I mean, you, you talk about, you know, the best organization for developing pitchers, uh, lo and behold, as you mentioned, I've been to a lot of places. And you know the funny thing is, Dave, everywhere you go to this day, people want to know how the Dodgers did it back in the day when they developed all that pitching and really some of those the best pitching coaches. And Dave, I know there's a lot more technology out there to measure a lot of different things, and that's great, but doesn't it come down to what you and other Dodger pitching instructors used to teach, and that's the lower half and using it as leverage? You talk to somebody who knows what we're doing. <laughs> you're, you know what? You're, you're exactly right. And, and I can tell you this for sure. Um, you're right. The information today is wonderful. You know, they're talking about spin rate, horizontal movement, vertical movement, spin efficiency, and all that stuff. But really, you know, I mean, we weren't quite as sophisticated with our language. But I can tell you that, you know, Sandy probably taught us all better than anyone. And it wasn't until he was done pitching. Of course, if you know Sandy, like everybody does, he's so inquisitive and so brilliant that he actually did a um, – a piece, I believe it was a thesis on the biomechanics of throwing a baseball properly and really relating it to a javelin thrower and how they use their lower half and that kinetic link, everything happens from there. So, you know, uh, that was great. But really in its purest form, what's being taught today is all over the place, but some of the guys have it right, like Rick Honeycutt did, and it validates what we were teaching back in the day. So that's really a nice kind of feather in everybody's cap. 
Dave, it's funny. Uh, Kevin Kennedy once told me that Sandy Koufax would demonstrate using leverage in the parking lot with one of those concrete parking blocks that you find in any shopping center. Did you ever have that type of experience with Koufax? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Wherever you are, you just get up. It could be Starbucks lot. It could be, you know, baseball parking lot. But, yeah, I mean, don't ask me why, but privileged to uh, become close to Sandy over the years. But, my goodness gracious, you know, people just thought he was so talented. But this man really, really knows. And you can ask Kershaw and all the other guys. He knows uh, the biomechanics of throwing a baseball, the mental aspect that's involved in it, the competitive aspect. You know, you talk about grips and all that. Um, just, Just a quick kind of side note. Sandy always talking about his fastball, four-speed, four-seam fastball, and have your you know strongest, longest, strongest finger on the highest seam. But he also talked about a curveball, and we talk about you know spin rate now, which I think a curveball is like 2,500, 2,700 is average major league. But can uh, Sandy talked about the rate of rotation, and taught us all that really a curveball from the time it leaves your hand until it gets to the catcher's mitt, rotates maybe 13 or 14 times, which was mind-blowing. But and sure enough, with all the cameras and the edutronic information today, you know, we validated that as well. So it was all good stuff, and it's all, it all ties in, believe me. That sure sounds like spin rate, Dave. Uh, it's just a different vernacular <laughs> that is. they're trying to introduce. Yeah, yeah it is. It's, that's what it is. The great Dave Wallace is our guest on Dodger Talk. We're very honored to have him on the show because for many years, uh, when he started with the Dodgers in 1980, he gained a wealth of knowledge of pitching and how to teach pitching from guys like Sandy Koufax. And in 1995, Dave, you replaced Ron Paranowski as Tommy Lasorda's pitching coach, and that was Hideo Nomo's Rookie of the Year season. What do you remember most about the first time you saw Nomo in Vero Beach and of that season? Well, you probably don't have have enough time for me to talk about all of it, but I'll I'll try to be brief and concise but pretty factual. Uh, What what you learned about Hideo right away is that he had what we call quiet strength. He didn't say much, but over time we found out that I'll tell you what, he observed everything and didn't miss a thing. And, of course, the first concern, everybody talked about his delivery. Oh, he's going to be hurt. He's going to do this. You can see the ball. He shows the split finger. <laughs> and and we heard all the things that were going on. But, I mean, he just was a guy that was – he was going to prove to the world that he could make the transition. And, and that was tough because he was very, very successful in Japan, as everybody knows. And, you know, I'll, I'll never forget his first start in San Francisco. Um, after I, we actually, actually followed the uh, last work stoppage, and that was a rough start to the season of 95. But um, he walked a couple guys, had the bases low with one out. And I think um, Jeff Kent was at bat. He followed uh, Bonds. So there's bases loaded, no outs, or one out, excuse me. And uh, I go out to the mound. I'm nervous as hell, you know, and I know Spanish pretty well, and I know English, but I didn't even think about Japanese. <laughs> and here comes, 
here comes here comes Piaz that we get out to the mound. So the first word out of Dumb Wallace's mouth is, "Hey man, como esta?" <laughs> and Piaz, Piazza starts laughing. He goes, "Hey man, he's Japanese." So, <laughs> and, and and you know what? To Nomo's credit, he said, "Good." <laughs> and that was him. And uh, you know, he, he threw a split finger, got a pop up, and a double play, and got out of the inning. But that was one of the coolest things that, uh, about Hideo. His personality wasn't affected. You didn't know if he was giving up three runs in the first inning. He was struck out the side in the first inning. His demeanor was just unflappable. Was he was he a pioneer in a lot of ways for the rest of these Japanese players that have come over and had success? Oh, absolutely, Dave. I mean, you know, I mean, I think somebody, I, I can't remember the name way back when, maybe the 50s or 60s, but Hideo really was the first guy to come over and, you know, try to make a mark. And son of a gun, if he didn't do it, you know, he ended up pitching 12 years. I remember his no-hitter in Coors Field in 1997. And I think it was September yeah. 17th, maybe. Yeah, um, right on. But that, Yeah, and that was the only no-hitter to this day in the history of that park. And the game was delayed a couple hours. It was a little humid. So a couple of those fly balls to the warning track would have been home runs otherwise. But, you know, in the lineup they had at that time with four guys hitting 40 home runs, I mean, he was just, and then he threw another no-hitter for the Red Sox, I believe. So, I mean, he, he was just a guy come over with, I, Dave, if, if I remember correctly, his his last five years in Japan, he averaged somewhere around 180 pitches a game, which was wow. crazy. Yeah. So he came over, he knew, he, you know, adapted real well here, had his routine, strong, strong legs, strong midsection, and, just, you know, the heart of a lion. You've seen a lot of games pitched, Dave, by a lot of different pitchers, but do you feel like him throwing that no-hitter, like you mentioned, the only one ever thrown in that hitter's haven of mile, of mile high course field, is that one of the single greatest pitch games that gets overlooked? Oh, I think without a doubt. You take all those factors in that was before they had the humidor with, for the baseballs, all that stuff. I mean, they had you know, and, and the lineup and the time of year and we're in the hunt and, you know, it's playoff time. We're, we're in the hunt to get in the playoffs. And, you know, he just two hour delay, you know, false start. We're going to start six fifteen, eight fifth. I mean, all the things that are really difficult for a guy to handle a starting pitcher when you're not sure what time it's going to start. Is it going to, we're going to play, we're not going to play. And um, few people realize how tough that is to handle. But for him to go out there and just dial it up when we need it most late in September in Coors Field, I mean, <laughs> really, you think about that, that's crazy. It really is. And still to this day, nobody else has achieved a no-hitter outside of Hideo Nomo back in 1997. Dave Wallace was his pitching coach, first one he had here in the major leagues. Dave Wallace was with the Dodger organization nearly 20 years, and that just barely scratches the surface of what Dave Wallace meant to the Dodger organization during his time. And so much so, 
Mike Sosha reconnected with you, Dave, a couple of years ago for you to be his pitching coach for Team USA that lost in the gold medal round. What was it like uh, being with Mike Sosha, not as the catcher this time, but as the manager? <laughs> well, so- Sosha and I go way back to the days when he was playing and then when he was managing Anaheim and I was coaching against him on the other side of the field. And uh, we've remained closeness over the years and when the opportunity came up uh about a year and a half ago because they had you know the games were in 2020 but we actually played them last summer and mike Mm. mike and i had a blast i mean we had a it was a very difficult job putting the uh team together because we couldn't use any 40-man roster players you know and it was just it was a real difficult situation the usa baseball to their credit what, what a job they did putting this thing together but mike you know, never lost his edge. We had a great time. And actually, uh, during our – we had to qualify down in Florida before we could even get to go to Japan. So for the qualifying tournament, uh, Peter O'Malley came down in support of Mike. And wow. it was it was really nice to see. You know, yeah. And, and Peter, I'm sure, uh, as he's, he'll tell you, he was going to come to Japan except for the COVID thing. But, you know, it was uh, – it was, it was just a great experience, great experience. And just, you know, one little side note, I know this is about Hideo, but we, we had second game in the, in, the, uh, in the Olympic tournament over there. We, uh, we, beat, we, we beat Korea. So, you know, there's no, no fans, all that stuff. So after the game, uh, one of the guys, one of the security guards comes in, he gets me and goes, hey, one of the Korean broadcasters wants to say hello to you. I said, really? <laughs> You know what? And I walk out, and little do I know, Chan Ho Park is doing KB Korean uh, TV and radio, and he called me, you American daddy, I haven't seen you in 20 years. And <laughs> those Dodger people, it was just a phenomenal thing to experience. You know, I mean, just to have Chan Ho come down and take his time, and it was great. Dave, you know, that reminds me, during the period of time you were the pitching coach for the Dodgers, you really did have a United Nations starting staff between Nomo, Park, Ramon <laughs> Martinez, and Tom Candiotti. Oh, yeah. I, I always remind the guys, I said good morning in four languages. <laughs> yeah. <You> know, <laughs> Japanese, Korean, Spanish, and English. It was, it, was, it was quite an experience. But, you know, more important than the language, I think, you know, to Mr. O'Malley's credit, we learned so much about the culture of those, all those, because the Spanish culture, you know, and I've gone to Dominican a hundred times and lived the culture. And now being, in, went to Korea uh, with Korean baseball team to help them out for a couple months, been in Japan twice. And, you know, to experience the culture and the game is, it's, uh, I hold it very dear to my heart. Well, Dave, you've given back so much, and you've paid it forward so much, and this was such a great excuse, like I told you, to share you again with Dodger fans, and we'll do this more often. And for us Dodger fans that grew up in the 80s and 90s, it was great to see you and Mike Sosha together in the dugout for Team USA. And uh, who knows? Crazier things have happened. Maybe we'll see you again in the dugout with Mike. Oh, we don't know about that, but I'm, I'm headed out west this, this summer, so I'm going to come by and see everybody at the stadium. That would be awesome. Dave, thanks a lot for the time. Uh, great sharing thank those Dodger calling, memories. All right. Okay, thank you.
There he goes, Dave Wallace. Uh, he may not be a household name, but if you uh, grew up loving the Dodgers in the 80s and 90s especially, uh, you remember him. And anybody that was a pitcher in the Dodger organization when Dave was part of it certainly remembers him. And that was just such a great great interview with so many great memories of great players. And just just awesome to hear how Sandy Koufax would teach the teachers and that is something that a lot of organizations never had. They never had great players like a Koufax, like a Johnny Padres, be able to explain and teach what they were able to do. You know, even to this day, when Sandy Koufax shows up in the clubhouse, he'll start teaching pitching mechanics if it's a conversational piece. He's not going to go up to a specific pitcher and say, hey, this is what I should do or you should do. This is what I would do if I were you. That's not the way it works. Uh, they might be eating in the food room and pitching comes up. Or he may say, hey, I, I, I enjoy watching you pitch. Have you ever thought about this? That's the way he teaches, and that's the way he is able to get these players to be open to what he's saying. Now, you know, Clayton Kershaw and Rich Hill have both told me on separate occasions that, and Kershaw has said this many times, that Sandy Koufax will show you something uh, on the baseball and how to grip the baseball, but Sandy Koufax, similar to Michael Jordan, has huge hands. So his fingers basically wrap around a baseball. That's how big of a hand he has, and that's why he was able to do the things he could do as far as manipulating the baseball with his curveball and fastball because his fingers were so long, his hand was so big, and both Rich Hill and Clayton Kershaw have told him, like, hey, I can't do that. My hand is not that big, so just awesome. Dave Wallace, awesome. Hideo Nomo, awesome. Just more than what he did on the mound, what he meant to his country, what he meant to so many other Japanese baseball players to give them hope that, yes, you can do this as well. So uh, awesome to use this week to celebrate Nomo signing with the Dodgers 27 years ago in 1995. When we continue here on Dodger Talk, we will go to the East Coast and check in with James Wagner of the New York Times to find out what he knows about the lockout and when it may end he's been there every step of the way so james wagner of the new york times joins us next on dodger talk right here on am 570 la sports your podcasts lockout be damned this is off-season dodger talk here's david vassay Thanks to Dave Wallace, former Dodger pitching coach and a wealth of pitching knowledge for taking us down memory lane to reminisce about Hideo Nomo and a lot of great stories of Sandy Koufax and the way he taught not only the players, but he also taught the teachers during his time as a pitching instructor for the Dodgers in Vero Beach. I guess we have to get to reality now. We'll get back to the phone calls in just a moment, 866-987-2570, but the reality is there is no pitchers and catchers uh, doing their thing at uh, Major League facilities. They're doing it uh, somewhere in Arizona, somewhere in their neighborhoods, and a man that has 
tracking the Major League Baseball lockout. Boots on the ground, whether it's Florida, whether it's New York, wherever the owners and players are meeting, he is there. And that is James Wagner from the New York Times. And you can follow him on Twitter at ByJamesWagner. Thanks a lot for coming on, James. Appreciate it. Of course, Dave. Not if I don't get to see you and talk to you enough during the season, I get to talk to you in the offseason, too. So it's a pleasure to be here. I'm sure you're enjoying this assignment of just waiting outside the commissioner's office down in New York. So uh, what's it been like to watch these uh, two parties walk in and walk out of offices and ballrooms? (laughs) To be clear, it's not just the uh, MLB headquarters. It's also the union offices, which are about five, six blocks away. Uh, I I think they kind of alternate home stadiums, I guess, uh, depending (laughs) on the proposal, I think. Uh, but it's pretty clear uh, talking to them, getting the other people, you know, being around as this happens. We know where the positions are. I know what their positions are. And, and you know, hopefully I've conveyed that to readers, um, what the union's positions are, what the players want, and then what MLB and the owners feel uh, about their side. We saw Rob Manfred last week have his press conference after the owners' meeting and their proposal. We saw what we saw on television. What was it like after that? Was he less optimistic off camera? What did you take away from that? Oh, he didn't hang around afterwards. I mean, both sides will say publicly that they want to get a deal done now. Uh, they want to get it done as soon as possible, that they want to get spring training in. They want to you know, preserve the regular season. Uh, but you know, in reality, in practice, it's different. I think Rob, at that point, he struck a fairly optimistic tone, I would say, uh, at that press conference. He wasn't going to go after the players to go after the union per se, but he was pretty optimistic in that regard, uh, saying he wanted a deal. But there were a few things, obviously, that players in the union uh, watching, you know, weren't necessarily, you know, happy about. Uh, but obviously, you know, he represents the owners and the sport overall. So, I mean, that's to be uh, understood. But, you know, things like, you know, when asked why there was a delay in, say, proposals between the lockout December 2nd um, and the first proposal made in, you know, kind of mid-January, 40-some days, I think, Rob, for example, said, the phones work both ways. Things like that, I think, you know, players in the union were watching. James Wagner from the New York Times is joining us here on Dodger Talk. He's been covering the lockout and the meetings and just being everywhere. All this has taken him during this off season. All right, James. So as far as Dodger fans are concerned, is there any chance that Major League Baseball agrees to lessen the penalties for going over the luxury tax or... Um, making the luxury tax number a little higher than what it's been recently? Yeah, I, I mean, all of this is negotiable, uh, and they've already shown that they are willing to negotiate on the CBT. I mean, I mean, for example, you know, that the union earlier this winter, uh, when they are negotiating, they wanted the threshold to be $248 million. Uh, it was at 210 to end last season. So they're asking for a 30-some million dollar jump. Uh, MLB was not asking for that big of a jump. Like, they... You know, they, their most recent offer, uh, it starts at 214 and it ends at 222 uh, over the five-year period. Huh. Um, and then they dropped, and they dropped uh, the, you losing a third-round pick, you know, after you go over the first threshold uh, because that stuff got tougher. Uh, those penalties got – but they haven't touched the financial penalty percentage, like the rate that you pay when you go over. Um, they did drop the third-round pick, but the second-round and the first-round pick are still there for going over the second and the first threshold, the third threshold, sorry. Uh, so, yes, those are negotiable. They've already shown they're willing to move. The players have dropped their, they dropped their demand from 248 to 245. Uh, it's only $3 million, but uh, they're moving. So there is, it is, it's possible that that's, they, they find some sort of middle ground, further middle ground. Uh, they are moving, but, like, 
Yes, that's more possible than, say, for example, the revenue-sharing arbitration like I was talking earlier. I think they're more entrenched um, on that side of, of not touching those. So are they going to dive into those topics next week? Because it's, uh, as Rick Monday would like to say, let's get down to brass tacks. And if they're going to meet every day next week, I, I would imagine the luxury tax would have to be a major point of uh, discussion. Yes, that uh, league minimum for players, which you know has moved, um, and I think the union wants it to further move. Uh, things like there's a pre-arbitration bonus pool that they, you know, that they are very far apart on right now. Um, you know, because the union recently they, they dropped their demand for 100% of the players, uh, you know, to get uh, arbit- you know, salary arbitration sooner. They dropped it to 80% of the players that are have served at least two years um, in the major leagues. But as they did that, they increased the bonus pool uh, that they want for players that have not reached arbitration yet. It's called the pre-arbitration bonus pool. Both sides have agreed to this concept. Uh, they're just very far apart on the amount they think should be in there. So if you're a, a player on league minimum and you like finish the top 20 in war, for example, or you, you know, win a, win a major award, you would get a, a bonus now. And, uh, you know, MLB has proposed the bonus pool to be $15 million and most recently, the union asked for it to be $115 million. So things like that have to, come, have to, that has to come up. League minimum, as I said, they have to dive into the CBT luxury tax. Uh, you know, they're going to have to figure out you know, where they stand on the arbitration and the revenue sharing, like I was saying before. And there's a whole other host of things. You know, the number of teams in, the, in expanded playoffs, they've both agreed to the concept of expanded playoffs. It's the number of teams. MLB is asking for 14 teams. The union wants 12. Uh, so there is a lot of things. It's not just those. I mentioned those three because those are three big issues that haven't seemingly moved a ton uh, and are enough to strike a deal. But, yes, it's those other things like I'm mentioning now that they'd have to get into as well next week. There's a lot of stuff to get done. The, CB, the CBA is a huge document that governs everything from you know, domestic violence policy to the drug policy to this, the operations manual. There's a lot of things they have to go through, and they're still you know, discussing and arguing over these big things now, and it's, it's what, you know, mid-February. All right, James, thanks a lot. You blew our minds. I'm not sure if uh, we could wrap our head around all that. Just hopefully let us know when there is an agreement. How about that? Let's keep it simple. Just let us know when there is an agreement. I will text you personally before I tell anyone else and tell my, our readers. Yes, so I'll tell you first when I hear. All right, sounds good. Thanks a lot for the time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. All right, there he is, James Wagner on the East Coast for the New York Times. He has been there when uh, Rob Manfred, Tony Clark go into the offices out there in Manhattan or Florida, wherever they go. He is one of those reporters outside reporting on what he has seen, the mood as they go in and as they go out, the length of the meetings. And Honestly, I think he is doing his job and reporting on what he is assigned to and the facts, but I don't believe that it really does anybody any good to hear that they only met for 15 minutes, that they are not going to meet again until next week. I think at this point, you only want to know when they have an agreement. That's the only thing we care about. We only care when they have an agreement. We don't need to be on the roller coaster of the highs, how it's looking good, everybody's happy, and the lows. When ah, it was a short meeting, nobody was happy with the proposals, the players are not happy. Obviously, it's already out there what the players want and what Major League Baseball wants to hold on to. All we care about is these two sides 
finding that middle ground. And let's face it, the players need the owners. The owners especially need these world-class players. Without the players, there is no game. But the one thing that I can't really come to terms with is why aren't the league and the players partners? It's it's benefits both sides to have a great working relationships with all these leagues, the NBA especially. David Stern fostered a great partnership with the players. Adam Silver may have gone a little bit too far and allowed the inmates to run the asylum when it comes to players forcing trades and holding out and all that. He may have gone a little bit too far, but at the end of the day, they have a good working relationship. Uh, For the most part, the players trust Adam Silver. The NFL is a different animal. Back in 86, they had players like Howie Long and Joe Montana and Roger Craig cross the picket lines during their labor uh, strife, and that gave the owners all the power, and that's the way it is right now. Uh, NFL players really don't have a lot as far as guaranteed contracts, and that's the most dangerous sport and physically taxing sport of the big three. Um, So that's a different entity, and I would say for the most part right now, The NFL's got labor peace, and Roger Goodell tries to make an effort to be a partner with the players. But I feel like in the NFL, everybody knows the owners run that league, and the players really don't have much of a say. But when you look at the NBA especially, I think that's the NFL's on a different level in a lot of different ways. But the NBA and Major League Baseball are close to even footing as far as the way their leagues are run. And I just would love to see these two sides get back to a point where they're partners and it can only benefit the game. It can only benefit the fans, us, that love the game. And another thing, when it comes to Major League Baseball, I'm getting tired of everybody trying to bash the sport and at every turn saying it's got to be better in this way, it's got to be better in that way. I agree. I believe analytics is is hurting the viewing product for baseball. I believe it's hurting the viewing product for the NBA especially. You know, I went to the Clippers-Lakers game a couple of weeks ago. The NBA is really hard to watch, but nobody seems to bash the NBA for losing the art of their game because they package it really well. Baseball has to learn how to package their sport better, and if they do then I believe the criticism that in a lot of ways is unwarranted will go away. They just have to be better at packaging their sport. And that's always been a big challenge for baseball. Uh, I remember Gary Sheffield telling me that when he was playing for the Dodgers, that there were players that they needed to showcase more at the time. And they didn't do a great job of that. And I don't believe they showcase their players well now. And the players themselves have got to be more open and willing to do that. Forget about, you know, that clubhouse culture pressure of uh, you can't set yourself apart from the rest of the team. Well, if you're good enough, yes, you can. And I know one guy can't make a huge difference to make a difference as far as winning or losing, uh, as far as getting to the playoffs or winning a World Series. But in a lot of ways, they can if they have good enough players around them. So I would love to see baseball package the sport better and once we get through this lockout maybe they can turn their attention to that 
because baseball is still a great sport. In a lot of ways, for me, it's more fun to watch a baseball game than it is to watch the NBA. They talk about the M- the Major League Baseball being a regional sport. Do any of us have really great interest in watching Utah versus Oklahoma City, even with you know some of the great players on the Jazz? Not me. Not me. I'll watch the Warriors play anybody, just like most of the country will watch the Dodgers play anybody. So it's the same thing, but it's about packaging it. And the people that cover the sport have got to stop taking shots at it. You are a fan. In some shape or form, you like baseball. That's why you cover it. That's why you got into this job. At some point in your life, you love the sport of baseball. You love sports. You love telling the story of the athletes. How about stop bashing the sport and accentuating what makes it great? Because there is so much great about this sport, and we all recognize that in Los Angeles. But the thing is, these other cities have got to rise up and invest in their teams and put some talent on the field. We saw in Pittsburgh when they were getting to the wild card game and they were trying to rattle Johnny Cueto in the wild card game. Pittsburgh will get behind the Pirates again if they put some talent on the field. That's not a question here in Los Angeles. We know the Dodgers want to win, but they have to, for the sport to survive, they can't just be playing the Rockies 19 times and winning 18 of them. That's not sustainable. And that's what the players are looking for. And honestly, the owners should be recognizing that as well. That'll do it for us tonight. Thanks to Dave Wallace and James Wagner for joining us. In case you missed any of those interviews, you can find it on the iHeartRadio app or at am570lasports.com. Our next show will be next Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. And before we say goodnight, I want to wish a special happy birthday to the one and only Manny Mota. Happy birthday, Senor Mota. We love you. Another Dodger legend that has meant so much to the organization. Happy birthday. Have a great weekend. Ronnie Fascio, love you. Thank you for all your help. We will talk to you next week. See ya. Another perfect day. I love LA. LA's best sports star. That's a good endorsement there. AM 570 LA Sports.